Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to Peter Neary about his co-authored biography of Joey Smallwood covering Smallwood's life before he became Premier of Newfoundland in 1949. Peter Neary was born on Belle Island, Conception Bay, just over a decade before Newfoundland joined the Canadian Federation. He has been a member of the Department of History at the University of Western Ontario since 1965 and is now Professor Emeritus. He has written numerous books and articles on various aspects of the history of Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as the history of Canadian veterans. Today, we are going to talk to him about his newest book, co-authored with Melvin Baker, entitled Joseph Robert Smallwood, Masthead Newfoundlander, 1900 to 1949. This book was released by McGill Queen's University Press in 2021. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Greg, it's great to be here. Now, your preference references Oxford historian Dermot McCullough's 2018 biography of Thomas Cromwell, where he states that, and I quote, the later stages of any life are usually best understood by what can be gleaned of the earlier. Was the Joey Smallwood, the individual who was premier of Newfoundland from 1949 until 1972, the same Joseph Robert Smallwood examined in your biography? I would say yes. Uh, Smallwood had a long life, of course. Um, he, he lived till 1991. He was born in 1900, lived till 1991. So obviously Melvin Baker and I had to explain why we were stopping in 1949. Um, from our perspective, it's a, it's a fairly defined period in his life. Something big happens in 1949. He becomes premier of, of a new Canadian province, and he's in that role until um, 1972. I'm a great fan of Robert Carroll's um, magisterial biography of Robert Carroll. And in his first volume on Lyndon Johnson, he spends a lot of time looking at Johnson's early life in Texas. Um, the forces that shaped him the experiences he had, what he learned from all of that, and what he brought to his career in politics. Um, Robert Caro has written that, that power uh, doesn't always corrupt, power reveals. That on the way up, uh, people have to make compromises, they have to conceal sometimes to get power, but then when they get power, they can reveal who they really are. I think that formulation applies to Smallwood. I don't think it's possible to understand what Smallwood was as premier without understanding what he was before he became premier. A few days before he became premier, on the 1st of April 1949, he published a long article in the Toronto Star explaining what he wanted to do as premier. So he was somebody who took power knowing exactly what he wanted to do. And that's why we wrote the book. 
Well, it's a fascinating biography, and I uh, really appreciate your reference to the biography of Lyndon B. Johnson, which I also read, which was a, a tremendous uh, and, and very enlightening biography. Uh, years ago, I was quite taken with uh, Wayne Johnson's novel, The Colony of Unrequited Dreams. In your opinion, how consistent is Johnston's portrait of Smallwood with your own highly researched account of Smallwood? Well, first of all, kudos to Wayne Johnson for writing such a successful and widely read book. Um, I'm not surprised that a, that a writer of fiction would find material in Smallwood's life. Uh, Smallwood created myths about himself, and myths have been created about him. So there's a lot to write about, just a lot to think about. Artists have also found inspiration in Smallwood's life. And while Smallwood was still alive, there was an actor, Kevin Noble, who went around the province acting the part of Smallwood. So he's an extraordinary figure, really. Um, we, however, uh, Melvin Baker and I uh, were engaged in a quite different enterprise. Um, Wayne Johnson brings literary imagination to the life of Smallwood, which is a wonderful thing. Melvin and I, Melvin Baker and I, sought out the documentary record. So, so our books are different in, in that respect. Although we were very fortunate to be able to refer in our work to another uh, book by Wayne Johnson, *The Old Lost Land of Newfoundland: Family, Memory, Fiction, and Myth*. So I hope Wayne Johnson enjoys our book as much as we enjoyed his. Well, you rely on. Um a number of different documentary sources, and uh, I would like you to describe some of these sources and how important they were to you in being able to reconstruct uh, his life and times. You've already referred to this, but I'd like to go into just a little bit more depth. Well, the documentation, as you can imagine, uh, is very, very rich. Um, Smallwood's papers are, are at the Memorial University Libraries in the... Um, archives and special collections section of that library, uh, where we had the expert advice of Linda White, who knows more about the Smallwood papers than anybody else. That archive also contains papers of Smallwood's contemporaries as well. So the Smallwood papers are huge, of course. And amazingly, they haven't been used very much. So um, we certainly use some information in those papers for the first time. Then on top of that, you have all of the records, of course, of the Newfoundland government, which are in the Rooms Provincial Archives in St. John's, uh, vast collections. And in addition, there are records in the Registry of Deeds in St. John's to Smallwood's property history. Melvin Baker was able to unearth his file in the Provincial Records Center relating to his insolvency. So that's a very important file as well. Then, in addition, of course, Newfoundland went through an awful lot during Smallwood's lifetime, from 1934 to 1949. It was governed by a, a British-appointed commission of government. Um, and the records of that commission are also in St. John's, and there are many records in London, England, as well, at the National Archives of the United Kingdom. I've worked extensively in those records, and I wrote a book in 1988 called Newfoundland in the North Atlantic World, 1929 to 49, which uses those records. Then in addition, from 1941 onwards, because of wartime activity, Canada had a high commissioner in St. John's. Newfoundland didn't send a high commissioner to Ottawa, 
Well, Ottawa sent a high commissioner to St. John's, and the records of that high commissioner are also very important, as are the records of the Government of Canada. Uh, then there are the records both in Newfoundland and Canada leading to Newfoundland's union with Canada. And on top of that, we have the records of the American Consul General in St. John's, the Americans having a, a large interest in Newfoundland from 1941 onwards because of their possession of base sites in Newfoundland. So, so the records, uh, uh, the available records are very voluminous indeed. Yes, and this book is extremely well-researched. Uh, so I know it took a great deal of time and effort on your part and Melvin Baker's part. So what made you both decide to spend this kind of effort on this book? Uh, and what did you feel was missing, if anything, from the current historiography of Newfoundland or even biographies of Smallwood himself that prompted you to write this particular book? Well, Melvin Baker and I have worked together for a long time. I was Melvin's PhD uh, thesis supervisor at the University of Western Ontario, and, and we've done a number of projects together since. Smallwood is the most important figure in the 20th century history, political history of Newfoundland. Um, he was premier for a long time. His premiership was transformative. He led Newfoundland into confederation. So he's a very dominant figure in the history of the province. Um, Melvin and I also noted, for instance, that Smallwood is not yet represented in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, the definitive source for uh, Canadian biography. One day his entry will be written. And one of our purposes in writing the book was to um, provide a basis for the writing of that biography. We may not write it, uh, but one day it will be written, and we hope that uh, substantial information can be gleaned from our book for that important entry in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. I noticed you've recently published an entry on Tommy Douglas. Uh, Joey Small is up there in the same category, I believe. So we set out to um, write the book for those sorts of reasons. There are biographies of Smallwood, of course, which are very important. Uh, the first one was Richard by, written by Richard Gwynn, who calls Smallwood the unlikely revolutionary. Then uh, Harold Horwood, a Newfoundland writer who also sat as a liberal member of the legislature for a while, also wrote a biography of Smallwood. Horwood later broke with Smallwood. He describes Smallwood as the most loved, hated, and feared of Newfoundlanders. And then there's a book by Ray Argyle, a short biography, which calls Smallwood a dreamer and a schemer. These are all valuable accounts. Our book doesn't set out to supersede them, but we provide a documentation which these writers didn't have. Well, since you already mentioned Tommy Douglas, let me jump to uh, another quite puzzling issue, which is at least from my perspective. I mean, Smallwood was a journalist, a labor organizer, and a general rabble-rouser. He was extremely critical of the status quo in the 1920s and 30s. He saw a better future for working-class Newfoundlanders, for sure. He was obviously very attracted to the Labour Party of Britain as well. Um, now, I'm quite familiar with the history and personalities of some of the early CCF members, and he really did remind me 
very much of some of these activists. So what held his radicalism in check? In other words, what kept him away from the CCF? Uh, what uh, shaped his sort of political ideology? Was it his belief in private enterprise of the industrial type as opposed to the rent-seeking merchants of Water Street and St. John? He seemed to have great respect for a certain type of private enterprise that made him probably a little different than some of the CCF activists, for example, in Western Canada. But I, I, I puzzled over this, and I think you might have a much better idea of it. First of all, I would say that Smallwood's radicalism was not held in check. But Smallwood proclaimed himself a socialist at a very early age, while he was in school, actually. And um, I think he stayed, to, stayed with the philosophy of socialism, but he was also a realist. So in the 1920s, he set out to found a Newfoundland Labour Party. When he was in New York, he wrote letters to a labor friend in St. Labor Union friend in St. John's named George Tucker, laying out what a Newfoundland Labour Party would look like, how it would be organized, uh, what it would set out to do. It's a very interesting set of letters which have been published. But eventually Smallwood, this happened shortly after he got married, actually, he came to see that wonderful as a Labour Party might be, to achieve the sort of goals he had in mind, he had to work within society as it actually was. So the perfect should not be the enemy of the good. So in the mid-1920s, around 1926, he wrote a set of articles in which he came to see that the Liberal Party of Newfoundland could be used to achieve the sort of goals that he had in mind. So uh, he, he once wrote that laborism started as liberalism. So liberalism could be made over to the purposes of labor and to the goals that he had in mind for Newfoundland society. So Smallwood, I don't think, abandoned his radicalism. He, he, uh, uh, he had to make compromises. He needed patrons. He had to work inside society as he found it. But when he got power, we saw what he really wanted to do, what he'd always wanted to do, and now he could do it. And the period of his premiership was a truly transformative period. There are two aspects of his personality that struck me uh, reading your book. The first is that he's, uh, he obviously was hyper-energetic. And second, he was incredibly ambitious, mainly for the future of Newfoundland, but obviously to some extent for himself personally. So you are our witness to yesterday, Peter. Can you tell us more about Smallwood's character, attributes, and vision while he was a striving young man in the 1920s and early 1930s? Well, Smallwood was a very a very ambitious man. Uh, one of his most outstanding characteristics, of course, was his resilience. He was small in stature, um, but he was very healthy. Uh, he he had the Spanish flu of 1919. We pointed out in our book. He he contracted that flu. That's the only evidence that I came across, Melvin and I came across, of Smallwood ever being sick. He was a man of huge energy, small in stature, very determined, uh, and um, wanting to change the world. So he was a visionary uh, before 1949. Uh, but I would say a visionary without a great sense of double-entry bookkeeping. 
accounting matters didn't matter so much to Smolin. He wanted to push forward with profound change. Right. And I think it was in 1930 that his second book uh, was released, and it was called The New Newfoundland. And I just have to repeat the subtitle. The subtitle is An Account of the Revolutionary Developments Which Are Transforming Britain's Oldest Colony from the Cinderella of Empire into one of the great small nations of the world. Wow, what a subtitle. It's a great subtitle. <laughs> it goes right back to uh, some of the subtitles that I remember from the 18th century. But the book was published by Macmillan. Can you tell us about, the, about this book's main purpose and your assessment of the book? Because I know it was also criticized at the time. Yes, it's a very uh, striking title. And the book was printed to uh, praise Richard Squires who had been Premier of Newfoundland from 1919 to 23, and was Premier again from 1928 to 32. Squires supported the book financially. He supported Smallwood while he was writing the book. Uh, Smallwood wrote a puff piece, if you like, about Squires. And in it, of course, he eulogizes Squires' development policies for Newfoundland. Uh, Squires was the Premier who had promoted the development of a pulp and paper mill at Cornerbrook which became a boomtown, a place where Smallwood went to live in the late 1920s. So Smallwood saw in Squires the kind of future he imagined for Newfoundland, an expanding economy, a growing economy, a larger economy in which the pie would be more equally shared in the population. So it's a puff piece. What strikes me about the book, most of all, is that it would be published in 1931. If such an optimistic title would come out in 1931 when Newfoundland was falling apart. Wires came back to power in 1928. He was in power when the Great Depression started. Uh, he was driven out of power following a riot in 1932. A very conservative government came into office in that year. Newfoundland went from pillar to post. It became dependent on Canada and Britain to make payments on its loans, and eventually the Canadians backed out in 1933. So the British had to decide, are we going to let the Dominion of Newfoundland fail financially, or are we going to support them, and if so, at what cost? And the answer of the British was, we will guarantee Newfoundland's debt, we will help them year by year, but in return they will give up self-government, which they did in 1934. So in came the Commission of Government. British governor, six commissioners, uh, directed by the Dominion's office in London. Uh, the Commission of Government had executive and judicial, uh, sorry, executive and legislative power. Um, no more elections, nobody voted. So Smallwood, the ambitious Smallwood of the 1920s, suddenly found himself living in a country uh, where politics, as we understand it, didn't exist. No opportunity to run, no opportunity to be a candidate, and on and on and on. And that lasted till 1949. Well, the contrast between the title of the book and what was actually happening in Newfoundland is so striking. Right. And, uh, of course, Smallwood was increasingly part of uh, a kind of an opposition through the media uh, as a journalist. 
1937, he actually wrote a column under the title By the Barrelman, and that's the name of the member of the ship's crew who climbed a mast to be a lookout. But then he also launched a radio program, which he too called the Barrelman, and it began and ended with the ringing of a ship's bell six times. Can you describe the impact of this program on Newfoundlanders and how it made Smallwood uh, far better known throughout the province? Well, you're absolutely right. The Smallwood in 1937 was um, publishing a column called From the Lookout by the Barrel Man. The Barrel Man refers to somebody who went up the mast of a ship to the barrel and looked about. So when he got on the radio in 1937, following his friend O.L. Vardy, uh, he called the program The Barrel Man. He was very nervous about going on the radio at first, but eventually got very used to it. His program caught on, and he found a sponsor in the St. John's businessman, F.M. O'Leary, Frank O'Leary. Uh, and his program had a motto. The motto was, making Newfoundland better known to Newfoundlanders. It wasn't specifically a political program. You can't call it a political program. But he himself said, and he and, and I entirely agree with him, that it had an underlying political purpose. It was a program of consciousness raising. It was a program that told Newfoundlanders after they lost self-government that they really were somebody, that they really did have a fine history, that they really did have the makings of a much better country, and on and on and went in that vein. It was a remarkable effort by Smallwood. He was a very fluent writer. Uh, he was on the radio for 15 minutes, six days a week. He produced a script for each program, uh, remarkable scripts actually, which are in the which are in the um, uh, holdings of the Archives Special Collections Center at, at the Memorial University Libraries. While he was while he was the barrel man, he would take a month off every summer. Summer, not surprisingly, I mean he obviously needed a holiday keeping up that level of writing. And um, during that month, he would travel outside of St. John's. He would travel to parts of Newfoundland. So he really got to know the country in that period. And people got to know him, both from listening to him and sending him information for his program. It was very much a two-way street. So Smallwood, who was already a great debater, he had long been a member of the Methodist College Literary Institute in St. John's, Already a great debater, already a very good writer, he got another huge political asset. He became a known radio voice. So in the book, we've tried to use some of Smallwood's own words. We've tried to draw on his own writing. So in 1941, in, in the August 1941, uh, he took his month away from the Barrel Man program. Eh? And he went back on the air on the 1st of September, and he started out with these words, which were very prophetic words about his later political career. He said, seeing that I've been away for the past month and that I had some talk about it before I went, I suppose you'll be expecting, you, the radio audience, will be expecting something in the nature of an account of my holiday. But when I came off the air at 7 o'clock on the night of July 31st, I jumped aboard a car, left St. John's, and went to Newfoundland. I've been in Newfoundland for the past month and arrived back from Newfoundland only today, around one o'clock this morning. I've been in Newfoundland many times in the past, but never did I find it more appealing than during the last four weeks. You see, I had been living continually in St. John's for a number of months, 
and it was a great pleasure to be able to go once more to my native country, to get the feel of Newfoundland, to breathe its air, to bathe in its atmosphere. After that absence of several months in Newfoundland, I found it not only desirable, but necessary to get back to Newfoundland so that the roots of one's national feeling might be watered, so that one's faith in the country might be strengthened and renewed, so that one could lay one's hands on old Mother Earth and feel the throbbing heart of Newfoundland once more. Well, it's been an inspiration. I feel like a Newfoundlander once again. Smallwood had a magic way with words, and uh, that was very evident in the Barrowman programs. In the course of a long life, Greg, I've, I've heard a number of very impressive speakers. Uh, I heard Tommy Douglas speak. I heard Rennie Levesque speak. Um, as a student in England, I had the privilege of hearing Martin Luther King speak. When I was a student at Memorial University in the 1950s, I went to a meeting in the CLB Armory in St. John's and heard Smallwood speak. I'd never heard him speak before. And I came from a part of Newfoundland that was very anti-Smallwood that had voted against Confederation. So that was, the, that was the atmosphere in which I had grown up. I can remember the events leading to Union with Canada. I tell you, when I went to the CLB Armory and I heard Smallwood speak, I couldn't believe it. So in my mind, I bracketed him with these other great figures that I've just mentioned. Okay, then Smallwood moved to Gander where he ran a piggery. Now, why did he move and how did this venture set him up, if it did, politically and perhaps economically for the future? A very important moment in his life. So he, he was the borough man for a number of years. This was a very demanding role. So in the fall of 1943, he gave it up and turned it over to uh, Michael Harrington. Uh, he himself, by that time, had bought a property outside St. John's where he was trying to develop a pig farm. He had been interested in farming all his life, so he grew up on the south side of St. John's where his family would have had a garden and so on. So he was always interested in gardening, agriculture. He was always interested in trying something new. So he started this pig farm, which was played to mixed reviews. But it got him into the business, and he met up with the commander of the RAF unit at Gander, Group Captain David Anderson, who wanted to start a piggery in Gander, and in fact, who built the piggery. So he brought Smallwood in, backed by businessman Chess Crosby, to run the piggery. So Smallwood went off to Gander by himself, leaving his wife Clara uh, at the farm on Kenmount Road in St. John's. And he went to a place that was booming during the war. So when the war started, Newfoundland suddenly became a very important location in the North Atlantic in an age of air and submarine warfare. Gander Airport had been built before the war. It was called the Newfoundland Airport at Gander. And um, it, it became an important center of transatlantic air operations. Um, the Newfoundland government decided early in the war that it couldn't manage uh, such an enterprise during the war, so it invited in the Canadian government to do that. So the RCAF took over Gander. American bases were established in Newfoundland. Newfoundland boomed during the Second World War. So Smallwood went to a place which was booming, where a big wartime enterprise was in progress, and which signified the future, the age of air travel. And he had a very great patron in Group Captain Anderson, who let him fly around Newfoundland in planes, who once sent him off to 
uh, Montreal on a B-24 and so on. Uh, Smallwood thrived in Gander, and uh, he was extremely lucky in another way. But a pig farm was a success in Gander. But, but he was very lucky in another way. In 1943, the British, of course, given these wartime developments, the British now saw that their day was coming to an end in Newfoundland. So in September 1942, the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Clement Attlee, came to Newfoundland, made a brief visit, really started the process by which the British left Newfoundland. So in December 1943, the British said that at the end of the war in Europe, this was something Smallwood had foreseen, by the way, at the, at the end of the war in Europe, they would give Newfoundlanders, they would provide Newfoundlanders with means to decide their own constitutional future. And in December 1945, they announced that these means would be the election of a national convention. So the national convention would not be a legislature. It would not make laws. It would not impose taxes, anything like that. What it, what it would do, what it was created to do, really, was to advise the British on what choices should be put before the Newfoundland people in a referendum about their constitutional future. So the Newfoundland people were going to decide. They were going to decide through a referendum process. But to have a referendum, you need choices. So the National Convention was going to advise the British about those choices. And eventually, it was said, laid down, that to be a member of the National Convention, you had to be resident for two years in the district you sought to represent. So luckily for Smallwood, he had been in Gander for that time. Uh, he had he had met that requirement. So he ran for the National Convention in the district of Bonavista Center, which included the big airport at Gander, and he was elected. If he had stayed in St. John's, if he had continued on as the barrel man, if he had left the barrel man and stayed on in St. John's as a pig farmer, I think his chances of being elected in St. John's, where he was, you know, had an indifferent reputation, really, uh, would not have been great. So going to Gander not only led to uh, prosperity for him, but also opened the door to an amazing political opportunity. And of course, when he got into the National Convention, he became the great advocate of union with Canada. In fact, in the book, you quote Bismarck's statement that political judgment is the ability to hear the distant hoofbeats of the horse of history. And uh, obviously, Smallwood did hear those hoofbeats in terms of Canadian Federation and Newfoundland joining the Canadian Federation. Just briefly tell us how Smallwood went about using the National Convention, not only to recover self-government in Newfoundland, but also uh, to encourage the people of Newfoundland to join the Canadian Confederation. Right. When he got in the National Convention, of course, he was in a body. It turned out he was in a body which was opposed to even offering the people in Newfoundland the choice of confederation. So he became the great spokesman in the National Convention for the option of confederation with Canada. He had done a lot of investigation of it before he went to the National Convention. He wrote a series of newspaper articles um, explaining why Newfoundland might want to be part of Canada. But in the National Convention itself, he was in the minority. So he argued the case in the National Convention. He made the case. Eventually, the Broadcasting Corporation in Newfoundland 
began broadcasting the proceedings of the National Convention. I can remember those. And Smallwood then was heard making the case over the radio night after night after night. So he became identified with that cause. When the National Convention actually got around to voting on what it would advise the British the choices should be, Smallwood, of course, moved that Confederation with Canada be one of the choices. Canada had sent an offer of terms to Newfoundland to be studied by the National Convention. A delegation had gone to Ottawa, uh, and as a result of that, terms were sent from Ottawa to St. John's, and those term terms were considered by the National Convention. But when the Convention voted on what to advise the British to be put, to, to put on the referendum ballot, they would not put Confederation with Canada on the ballot. So they said at the end to the British, there should be two choices. Um, uh, responsible government as, as it existed prior to 1934, that is before the establishment of the commission, or commission of government. The British, however, had set up the convention as an advisory body. They had the last say about what would be on the referendum ballot. So they accepted those recommendations, changed them a bit, and they added, with Smallwood prompting them, they added the choice of Confederation with Canada. So there were three choices. And because there were three choices and there had to be a majority, um, democratically it was decided that what was to be done would have to be by majority vote. Given three choices, it was possible that on a, on a first vote there would not be a majority. And that's exactly what happened. So the responsible government option came first, Confederation second, and then about 14 to 15 percent of the people voted for continuation of commission of government, in this case only for another five years. And then the runoff was held between the two highliners, and on the second vote, 52.3 percent of the people who voted in a very high turnout voted for union with Canada. The British were very nervous after that vote. Would this result be sufficient to persuade a somewhat nervous Canadian government to proceed? So they were very pleased when the government of Canada announced that indeed it would proceed on that basis. So Smallwood made the case in the National Convention, then he led the fight through the referendum campaigns. And on the basis of all of that, he became premier of the province on 1st of April, 1949. Well, Peter, on that point, uh, and individuals can go on to read the rest of the history of Newfoundland and the biography of Joey Smallwood as Premier, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today and talking about Joey Smallwood's uh, life before he was actually Premier. Thank you. Greg, very good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. My guest today was Peter Neary. He's the co-author with Melvin Baker of Joseph Robert Smallwood, Masthood and Newfoundlander, 1900-1949, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. 
If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGilveen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 1st, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.